Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Keyforge friends, welcome. This is Zach, and today, as I mentioned last week, we are continuing some Call of Discovery replays. This one is about Team Covenant's Power 7. Ed Pocock and I, back on Call of Discovery, talked about the Power 7 from Team Covenant and what it means in Keyforge. The Power 7, uh, as you'll find out, and we'll list them in the episode, are a number of card game mechanics and concepts that can really make or break your card game. It was an absolutely amazing series. Uh, Team Covenant had a whole bunch of really big name card game designers on, so I'd recommend you go check that out back on the Covenant cast feed. Uh, And in this episode, we review what each of the Power 7 is and then dive into what it means for Keyforge, since Keyforge is a game of many different paradigms being shifted uh, in the traditional card game space. And of course, uh, as I said last week, if you were a Call of Discovery fan, you have been missing that sweet, sweet introduction music. And so, without further ado, the Call of Discovery music and our discussion on the Power 7. Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you on a journey into the crucible for a celebration of all things Keyforge, its fantastic community, and of course, that wonderful, warm, cuddly excitement of Discovery. I am still somehow here over two years, two and a half years. I mean, it's been a while, hasn't it? I'm Ed, um, and I'm here with the wonderful Mr. Zach Armstrong. Zach, how are you doing, mate? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And uh, just for the record, Ed, Ed, you've been here over three years. I've been here for over three years? That's yep, not even yep. allowed. Um, August, August of 2019, because I came on and then the pandemic hit. So, you know, I don't know what that means, but... Well, where would we be without you, Zach, literally? Um, (laughs) But we've got an exciting topic at hand today, haven't we, Zach? We do. We do. We are doing something very fun, which uh, is somebody else talked about something very cool and exciting and interesting. So we're going to talk about it, but make it about Keyforge. Mm-hmm. And that thing is the power of seven. Um, and when we say the power of seven, it could mean oh, it's, anything it's just really power nebulous, seven. couldn't it? Yeah, uh, it's a powerful number, isn't it? Seven. Oh, it's just seven. It's it's just power seven. It's not power of seven. Oh, yeah. Because well, that's slightly disappointing. Can we call yeah. this the power of seven though? Because this is technically our thing now. So we're taking the power seven, <laughs> and we're making it the power of seven. Um, Fantastic. Why not? But anyway, dear listener, uh, this idea came from uh, something our wonderful friends over at Team Covenant did. That's Zach and Stephen at Team Covenant. 
they were a retail store, but they've been selling Keyforge online for a long time. Um, they are huge stalwarts of the community for Keyforge, Keyforge, for for Keyforge, and for many other FFG games that I'm sure many of you have played and enjoyed over the years. Um, in fact, Zach has been on an episode of Call of Discovery, which was 23 and 24. So definitely go back and check that out. He is a man of many exciting things to say. Um, and they've recently interviewed um, Christian T. Peterson as well, the now um, overlord of uh, the Keyforge realm and all of its... Uh, all who uh, all who dwell there. So that was a fantastic interview, and definitely go and check that one out. But the Power Seven uh, or the Power of Seven is a recent series that they've been running, looking at some of the sneaky little mechanical things in card games that can essentially cause damage to a card game. Wouldn't you say, Zach? Yeah, it started out. Essentially, yes. It started out as uh, they wanted to call it actually a seven deadly sins of game design. But as they looked at these concepts, they decided to to back off of calling them, uh, calling these cores of concepts and mechanics and involving them in their game. They decided to back off of calling them sins and just call them power seven. They are things that can make or break a card game and often maybe break a card game more often than they make one. So they, they brought on a lot of designers to, to chat about all these different concepts and how they fit into uh, the card game space, when to use them, when not to use them, what are the dangers. And uh, most of those designers have gone through a, a number of the dangers uh, themselves, um, which uh, made for just a very interesting, a lot of interesting topics spoken directly from uh, industry pros who had uh, designed one or more games with all these sorts of things in mind. Absolutely. And, and this came off the back of an earlier series they did uh, called um, <clears throat> an earlier series they did entitled How to Ruin a Game, which is, I think, potentially one of the, the most entertaining podcast arcs I've ever listened to in my life. So that's another thing to go and check out. And that looked at essentially everything from distribution to mechanics to marketing to um, how do you keep player trust? How do you look after and cultivate a community? And uh, those lessons learned were you know, quite often related to, to many of the games that uh, Team Covenant played. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, dear listener, you'll have played one of them too. So fantastic series that. But today is about the power of seven. And specifically, how does that relate to Keyforge? Yes, yes. And you may be familiar with uh, what the Power 7 are, but to list them uh, to list them in short, they are resource cards, the concept of free as, co- as a cost, silver bullets, limit one, recursion, denial, and then memory. Uh, so Sorry, what, what was that last one, Zach? I forgot. M- <laughs> <laughs> memory <laughs> oh yes <laughs> i remember now <laughs> indeed indeed yeah so all all of those topics uh referring to some aspect of card game design whether it's thing that happened on individual cards or concepts that you're involving in a meta or when you're designing the game so so really a really interesting a really interesting series and what we're going to do 
is we're going to chat a bit about Keyforge and the Power 7. Take a look at each of the Power 7 and say, what did Team Covenant talk about with regards to most TCGs? And But what about Keyforge? Is, it, is this concept different in Keyforge? Because Keyforge has you know at least two paradigm shifts from other games. Every card is free to play as far as costs go. Uh, you know, that's the default. And then uh, the decks are algorithmically generated, unique and locked in. So that actually changes a lot of the thoughts in kind of each of these categories as we go. Uh, and I always love this kind of higher level meta talk about Keyforge's design because those two paradigm shifts combined into one, you know, cards being uh, cards being free and putting the cost, you know, really putting the making all costs opportunity costs, and then the locked in deck list, uh, I think changes just the math on you know how to get to your win conditions so much that it's just it's just so fun to talk about. It's so fun to talk about, and so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And without further ado, should we should we dive into the first one, which is indeed one of those that's extremely different to other card games, um, and that is resource costs. Yeah, yeah. Let's dive right in. Mm. So, I mean, what what card games are you familiar with, Zach? Because yeah, you know, most of the card games that I've played over my many years apparently i'm 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 a lot older than i thought i was from our conversation earlier and um, have resource cards in some way so you have uh magic has land pokemon has energy cards and they found ways to get around this with with other games for instance there's a few digital games Rune Terror, Hearthstone, that use a kind of ramp up each turn. You've got a little bit more resource to spend, a bit more resource to play with, but that's a still essentially a digital uh, implementation of, of 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 those resource costs, um, which which is fascinating. What what examples do you have to hand, Zach? Well, with the uh, with resources being on cards, which you know means tying them to the variants of a card game inherently of, of having a deck. Um, another an example of that that I've played is, of course, an Android Netrunner, big Android Netrunner fan. Uh, but of, of, as we have seen people change how they put costs in card games across a few designs, uh, one of my favorite implementations of kind of updating it and evening out uh, the resource variants is the style of resource that happens in Marvel Champions and Flesh and Blood, which uh, actually share that in common in that the resources to play cards uh, are on every card. So you can play a card as a resource or you can play a card uh, for its play effect. Uh, And of course, in Flesh and Blood, you even have more options beyond that, which is just a, a very cool design space. Uh, and, uh, of course, so, um, and like with those others, you mentioned that do take it out. You're still, you're still using costs. Even if you've taken the variance out of your deck, you're still costing, costing your cards, which is totally fine. But it's funny how much this just does not apply in Keyforge because there are no resource cards in Keyforge. I think the closest we get to the variance of a deck affecting your pace might be, uh, if you have a lot of Amber pips, seeing how many Amber pips you have. Uh, but even then, the Amber Pips are really just there as one way to help the game move along a bit quicker. Many decks will be needing to generate Amber off of, uh, you know, other small combos uh, or a board state or reaping out or, or that sort of thing. Uh, and, and for me here, I guess we can abstract the term resource a little bit more. 
what is a resource about? It's about scarcity. It's about supply and scarcity. And so a, a, a four-drop uh, magic card feels valuable because you've had to go in and you've had to decide, okay, first of all, I've, I've got all my lands. I, I've done this now. And I'm going to tap them all. I'm going to make this decision to play this one card so it feels valuable. If you could play every card, if you had your whole deck in your hand at any one time and you could play them all, they wouldn't feel valuable because there's not that scarcity. So it's that scarcity that really makes it a resource that brings its value. And so I suppose we could almost say that cards in hand is your resource the the scarcity imposed by having a certain number of cards in hand is the resource in keyforge um plus board i suppose yeah yeah and that's where the the scarcity you're right that the scarcity it comes from the resources you're able to get to the resources you're able to generate when they're on cards uh, but that gets uh, extra- abstracted in a way that you talked about with Keyforge, where the resources are uh, really you you have you have uh, on any given turn you can you know normally call one of three houses, and so you basically have three different avenues to use your resources, uh, generally speaking. And so the cost is okay. I only can pick one, mm. and I can't pick the other two. So the cost you're paying is not playing your other two houses. So, uh, and what's just what I love about that in Keyforge is it moves it into a completely different space. And instead of saying, okay, players, get your resources, uh, spend effort, spend cards, getting your resources, and then you can pay to start doing the things and move towards your win condition and interacting with your opponent. Uh, and I know that's an oversimplification, but in Keyforge that says, nope, let's just start from the place where uh, your only resource cost is just uh, calling the right house out of three, and there's twelve cards uh, of each color uh, in three, you know, in three houses across this deck. Uh, it just it moves the game. Uh, the game feels more active that way. There's the the restrictions become abstracted a bit that allow for um, a whole lot of interesting play. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. And and if we may sort of poke the bear a little bit with some of these other card games, there's a reason why resource cards is included in the power seven, power of seven. Um, and, you know, it's because they can create issues. Um, why have digital games tried to get around resource cards? Why has Keyforge gone for a different, a different method completely? It's because resource cards quite often add a bad feel to the game so they can if they're coming out of your deck they make things feel uh, a little bit um dependent on your draw so they increase the um the randomness that you can suffer and yeah even if they're not coming out of your deck they're just fiddly and maybe slightly unnecessary i think is is where we've got to with resource cards yeah, and to point to something in Keyforge that uh, relates to this, because uh, what you were referring to, right, is that concept of um, you know mana flood or, or mana screw. If you've played Magic: The Gathering, I'm sure you're familiar with that term. Uh, and of course, any Keyforge player will know uh, if you're paying attention to your to what's going on in your, in your hand. Uh, if you get stuck in a two two two, that can really limit your that can really limit your options, and that is. Uh, well, I think it's it's not quite as bad as Mana Flood or Mana Screw. Uh, however, that does create a feels-bad moment. But what 
what that does is it points at what the resources are in Keyforge. Because if you're in a two, 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 uh, your resources are limited. The cost is always four cards of the other house instead of drawing into a nice four or five card hand where the resource, the cost is only two or one card of the other house. Of course, only looking at the size of a, a regular hand and not what you've going, got going on on board. So uh, uh, really pointing to that play experience, which might be a, a small negative one in Keyforge, but I think it illustrates uh, where that cost is is coming from. But speaking of all of this stuff costing nothing, uh, what's the next uh, Power 7 concept here, Ed? <laughs> well, I wish more stuff was like this, Zach. Free. Um, and, and, and freeze There's no such thing as a free card, Edward. <laughs> there really isn't. It cost a tree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> literally. Um, okay, so freeze a little bit different in Keyforge, isn't it? We, we're going we're gonna to go back and look at how free, free behaves a little bit in different card games. But for Keyforge, it's a little bit different because everything is free. And nothing is free because of the resource constraints that we just spoke about. But then, yeah, it just works completely differently. So, Zach, do you want to give us a bit of a history on on free? Yeah, yeah. In the episode, so, of course, free being uh, in a card with a resource cost, uh, or excuse me, in a card game with resource costs, if you have a card that ends up free, just you have to be careful about how that's balanced uh, because something that uh, something they said on the podcast for this topic was the difference between one cost and free is much dig the difference between one cost and free is much bigger than the cost between two cost and one cost so even though the math each of those there's just a difference of one right between zero and one and one and two a card being free in a card game uh, opens up a whole world of possibility as far as being able to, to play it uh, as many times as you want to. And of course, with regards to this resource cost in particular, everything is free in Keyforge, you know, except for uh, a, a few, a few exceptions that, you know, have you uh, that have you have to have particular parameters to get the card in play. Um, but really, it just goes back to that idea of where the resources in Keyforge, where the cost you're paying is not doing the other stuff you could do. Um, so really, in a sense, everything is free in Keyforge because there's no resource cost. Uh, but you could also flip that in a different way and have this be equally true and say, actually, there's no such thing as a free card in Keyforge, which I actually think is a more helpful framing if you're someone who wants to improve at the game. Yeah, I think this one just really illustrates how different Keyforge is from a lot of the other games that came before it. The fact that for actually three of these spoilers, three of the Power of Seven, Power Seven, uh, that we're looking at today, Keyforge is really fundamentally different for, I think just underlines how much this has innovated on what's come before, how much this really adds to uh, adds to the space. Um but but yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Zach. I think nothing is truly free with, with Keyforge. The one, one thing I would say is, you know, potentially looking at this, if we're talking about actions and free actions, um, the, the rule of six is a, a good way of um, constraining things a little bit and ensuring that nothing is free, at, at least to an infinite degree. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. That's a very good point. That rule of six, of course, very intentionally picked so that if you're pulling something off six times, you're getting at most, uh, well, uh, probably six amber, maybe three, maybe uh, 18, 36 or more, <laughs> depending on your combo. Uh, but yeah, that rule of six, I think, was very intentional to put a soft cap on any kind of infinite free recursive loop. Which, uh, a side note there, uh, <laughs> something I've been interested in, and I don't think this exists in any deck yet, or on really on any combination of cards, but I start to look at abilities that are essentially passive abilities that do trigger at some point that are on a Keyforge card. Uh, something like Hard Simpson. Give me a second here. He says looking up Hard Simpson. Yep, yep, I'm just typing is, loudly into Arcana Arcana. I almost typed Hard Simpson into the Google search bar, which was not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Uh, that's a uh, <laughs> that's an after... Um, <laughs> Discovery After Dark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Discovery After So uh, I've been looking... Off. I've been looking at cards with abilities like Hard Simpson that are abilities that activate, but are kind of passive abilities that aren't a play or use effect. So Hard Simpson, four power creature from Dark Tidings, uh, it says, after Hard Simpson is dealt damage, steal one amber. If the tide is low, your opponent steals one amber instead. So when that triggers, that's not a play or use. So that'll never, that will never hit the rule of six. And so in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, well, how could you get this to uh, how could you get this to loop a infinite number of times? Right. Because it's not restricted by the rule of six. So you get to sneak past it. Now, of course, the way this is designed, uh, there's a number of things. One, your opponent could run out of amber Two, it's only a four power creature. So you need to be in an extra special magic Christmas land situation to deal hard Simpson enough damage to get everything stolen. And then you've got the question of, well, how are you going to do that many individual instances of damage? So hard Simpson, I don't think is uh, the infinite combo, the infinite combo that uh, I'm trying to, to find here. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Cause that, that ability uh, is quote unquote free, but you have to damage hard Simpson and there's other conditions. So That'll keep uh, it keeps the crucible safe from my machinations for now. Everything is earned in Keyforge, unless you're <laughs> a member of House Shadows. I think it's fair to say um, everything is free in Keyforge. Nothing is free in Keyforge. <laughs> and, and we're going to be talking about a future house next: the the Werewolf House and Silver Bullets, right? <laughs> yeah, we don't know exactly what their theme is. I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking they're the mechanical ghosts like the Grim Reaper. We had some flavor text from the spoiled adventure that uh, that suggested that. I'm just making a, a, a silver bullets joke about werewolves um, and shoehorning it into the podcast. <laughs> it was a tenuous one at best, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they'll have a werewolf. Maybe, maybe. At some point, you know, if Keyforge goes long enough, there will be werewolves. <laughs> yes yes the uh the art on way of the wolf seems to be uh lycanthropic to some degree that's for sure <laughs> I, i've been practicing that for a long time um i'm so glad we got to that point i'm so glad we got to that point so silver bullets 
Yeah. <laughs> so the the context from Team Covenant's covering of Silver Bullets is that Silver Bullets are cards that are released as a Band-Aid for a specific card or threat in the meta. So there's a maybe there's a situation in the meta or a specific card, a specific, specific archetype that is really dominant, really oppressive, and the developers say, well, you know, that's actually too big of a threat. We need to do something about it. And of course, because Arata always feels bad, it's not great to be playing with cards that uh, don't mean what they actually say on the card, right? So sometimes people will release cards that specifically answer that threat. Uh, and of course, this can get a little bit janky because all of a sudden you have to make the choice in a deck builder at the very least. Do I run the silver bullet and it's useless if I'm not in the big threat matchup? Or do I run the silver bullet just for that one interaction? <laughs> just for that one interaction that I think I'll see at this tournament or local play night or whatever. Uh, if you are familiar with Android Netrunner at all, uh, Plascrete Carapace was the silver bullet that is the most famous in, in this space. Uh, the runner as an asymmetrical card game, a hacker and a corporation, and the hacker could die to meat damage, which uh, represents uh, the corporation actually sending, you know, hit people after you. And uh, there were some strategies so dominant in the meta doing meat damage to the runner uh, that Plascrete was printed and Plascrete Carapace was a, a card that helped you just literally just prevented meat damage, didn't do anything else. And everybody had to run two copies of Plascrete Carapace or the corporation was going to pancake you every time. And so, I think it's fair to say that's where this becomes a little bit toxic. When you have something where everyone has to run it if they think that someone, if they think that the meta is going to stay the same, once it's changed, of course, if they don't run it, there's still that threat of the meta going back to where it was and them losing, and that's a feel bad. Um, yeah. and, and and one thing that was discussed in this episode is the the um, the fact that sometimes this becomes a self fulfilling loop, um, and. Uh, where you find yourself with okay well i've made a silver bullet for this issue and that then because everyone's running in their deck needs a silver bullet to resolve in itself the the one the example that you gave zach for android sounded quite passive but quite often there'll be something that you know um rock rock kill scissors um and then rock's so powerful on its own that you need to put in paper um, but then paper's so powerful, you need scissors again. So yeah, you, you find yourself in this, in this loop, um, that you don't want to be in, um, uh, in, in a card game. Um, but Keyforge isn't like that, is it, Zach? Uh, no, not really, because the unique deck aspect really keeps you from, uh, really keeps you, especially at a local meta or regional meta level, keeps you from having to deal with that sort of thing. Of course, you might bring answers to specific archetypes, right? Like Dasanya to discard archives, or you're really going to maybe want to make sure you have a board wipe unless you know your deck is super fast. The only thing I can really think of, and this archetype hasn't taken off enough, it didn't have enough mainline tournament success to quite be a threat. Uh, but for a long time online, at least, people were really scared of Heart of the Forest. And of course, there's a player or two who are who have been just very good at playing Heart of the Forest and have been really trying to find the right decks uh, with Heart of the Forest uh, to to try to have that automatic kind of combo win. 
And so I remember seeing quite a bit of chatter around a few tournaments that say that said, uh, especially SAS cap, where you would play lower rated decks by SAS, where there's a lot of Heart of the Forest decks. Uh, the question would be, okay, what's your plan for Heart of the Forest? But that's the closest we've ever gotten. And um, I think local metas, uh, even if they're competitive, are malleable enough and need to bend to the whims of the playgroup having a good time, even if it's competitive, um, <laughs> that we won't quite have to deal with uh, with a rampant Heart of the Forest players just yet. And you also have players that have very strong Heart of the Forest decks, uh, like myself, that can't figure <laughs> out how heart to of the play them decks, effectively. I got... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And it's got... I need to look at that deck list again. I remember looking at it and going, wait, this is actually a really good double heart deck. <laughs> it is really good. It's got uh, Binate Rupture, the uh, the combo with that. Um, I've forgotten the other card. but um, um, Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's got the it, full got... Binate Rupture interdimensional graft combo. Yeah, it's got the full Bionic Rupture interdimensional graph combo. And if you play it right, play your cards right, literally, um, it can be amazing. But um, it requires you consistently sort of not getting distracted um, by talking to the person on the opposite side of the table and actually playing it, um, which, which is my downfall usually um, <laughs> in, in, in such topics. Uh, Zach, I, I do think that there is another place where Silver Bullets have played a role in Keyforge. And if we look back to kind of Kota, Call of the Archons, the, the first set of Keyforge, and think about some of the archetypes that were in play. We had shadows being very strong with their steel mechanic. It was, um, yeah, there was a lot of lot of rush going on, but shadows and their steel capability was was incredibly powerful to the extent that there had to be some uh, erratas of of, of 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 certain cards. But in the next set and the set after, what we started to see a lot more of were anti-steal um cards and yeah we we saw things saying hey you can't steal if this is in place you can't steal um or you can only steal so much and yeah they they they, i think did a good job which is why they they don't stand out immediately as silver bullets i think generally if something didn't do such a good job and it felt bad and it was very obvious like the card you mentioned for android netrunner you know that's a silver bullet but this, yeah, yes. it, it, it did the job. It softened the the hard edges of, of steel in set one, um, mm-hmm. but it didn't sort of bludgeon it. <laughs> they, they managed, yeah, what they managed to do exactly as you're talking about in Worlds Collide is uh, really kind of diversify the meta by putting it across a few different cards on common and uncommon um, in combination with other abilities that got printed on cards that really took the wind out of the sails for pure Coda Rush, which was dominant for so long. It was anti-steel combined with uh, big boards of dinos and Star Alliance, of course, as well as key cost increase. Because if you're a Coda Rush deck and you're untamed bursting and you're Coda stealing, sometimes if that stopped, uh, a bunch, that's great. But then uh, they drop an Eddie down, put a fifth card in our archives, and you've just forged your fifth key, or first key for 11. So they, I think they did a great job in having that be a diverse meta and it not so much being about, I need to bring a deck with this one specific card because of this one specific threat. That's going to be a feels bad moment. If I don't have the silver bullet, um, 
And like I said, there's a there's a gray line between that and just kind of, I, okay, I have two good decks. One has Dasanya, the other doesn't. I'll pick the Dasanya deck in case I come across a big archive deck. Um, so those are related, but perhaps uh, not quite the same, especially given the, the nature of unique decks. Yeah, agreed. And I think just to take stock so far, we've had three areas of our seven. And they're all areas where Keyforge has kind of outwitted its uh, uh, older peers or siblings and, you know, done something a little bit different that manages to... um, It's got all of these mechanics, but they don't look the same and they're they're not necessarily subject to the same limitations and drawbacks. Um, But I think we're moving on to four now that have some of the same uh yeah things are getting a bit more familiar the examples that we can draw upon from other card games are a little bit more comparable than they were with the the, the previous three um and the first one of these is limit one uh limit one being very simply the idea that you have one of these cards in your deck as a bit of a balancing mechanic um the interview with this was with mj newman um, who is the lead designer for, for Arkham Horror, the card game. Um, one of my favorite games, so I very much enjoyed this interview. Um, and I think it's an area that you know is different for cooperative games, is different for competitive games, and is different for unique games. But the overall idea is to use uh, limit the number of cards a player can have in deck to be essentially a balancing mechanic um, and allow designers to have a little bit more flexibility in printing cards that just wouldn't work if there were many more of them. Now, the downside of this and something that MJ mentioned in the episode uh, was, I, I mean, cognizant, of course, that Arkham Horror is a cooperative card game. So the challenges presented by sort of limiting card numbers and if you get the balance off, it all goes wrong. It it doesn't really happen in the same way. It's more about flavor and doing fun things, I think, in co-op games. But for competitive games, um, limiting things to one means that, yeah, you can only pick one up in your deck, which means the randomness of are you going to see that one card increases um but is that a good balancing mechanic zach what do you think it i mean of course it depends right they said i think they joked that that could be the answer to is this power seven thing good (laughs) it depends um uh but it certainly it certainly does depend i think their main point their main point is that it introduces variance as a way to solve an issue if this is your band-aid if you say this card is too powerful uh we need to limit it to one that means you're going to increase variance and the point some points that mj brought up that were very fair were that um it depends on kind of the function of the mechanics of your game how often do you see a given card in a deck in a game which is really a difference between seeing it early or very late so um and i think that was a, a good point um, of course, there's also theme reasons in particular IPs for being limit one of right, like the one ring in a Lord of the Rings card game is going to be uh, a one of and that's not a nerf necessarily. That's just that simply a uh, there's only one. It would be kind of silly to have more than one of these one of these in play. And so I think 
Keyforge, of course, has uh, limit ones, right? We've got um, auto encoder. We have uh, library access was limit one. Uh, all the all the key cheats, except for Nightforge, uh, are limit one. So that is increasing variance because of some reason the designer, for some reason the designer said, we don't want this in multiples. This is either too powerful or uh, it's just there's too many combos that happen here. Uh, and so we want to limit one. And uh, I think it increases variance in Keyforge, no doubt. Um, you often have a bit more speed in Keyforge, even if you're just drawing up the end of your turn. So uh, while it does increase variance, and I've had plenty of those experiences myself, um, it's a little less of a sting in Keyforge than it is than it is elsewhere. Uh, though I'm, I'm no stranger to the, the sad, sad feeling when that one card I needed that was limit one in the deck is is on the bottom. No, absolutely, and and in Keyforge, you you draw through your deck quickly, right? As as you uh, as you've alluded to, um, and I think you've used the example earlier of Marvel Champions, where you also draw through your deck pretty quickly. And any ones of those, limit one is going to be less effective, maybe than it would be in another game. So maybe the the truly for Keyforge, the real limit one is play this one one time and then exile it completely like the uh, library access errata. That's the real limit one for Keyforge. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the funniest things about limit one in Keyforge is that sometimes that limit one was decided by a human putting that into the algorithm saying, okay, auto encoder, limit one, library access, limit one. However, you also just might simply have a one of in your deck because the algorithm decided it was so, you know, one hunting witch, um, one anomaly exploiter, uh, one of just really anything. And that to me is just so funny that we have to consider that in Keyforge saying, well, there's a card. There's only one of in my deck. Uh, that wasn't intent on the part of the designer. They're just the variance of whether or not I'm going to see this card has increased because of uh, the algorithm said so which I think is so funny. And of course, it gets away a bit from the core of Team Covenant's point of a designer saying, okay, let's limit one, let's increase variability uh, for the sake of balance. Um, I just think it's funny that in Keyforge, uh, most decks will have a bunch of cards that are limit one because <laughs> you can't change the deck. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's all down to the algorithm, the wild wormhole yeah. of the algorithm. So what we're getting at here is the D-House, it's all your fault? Yep, 100%. Great. Yes, that's good. been well established, I think, at this point, that everything is his fault. I'm glad we both agree on this one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and talking of uh, bringing back common themes in the podcast again and again and again and again until our listeners roll their eyes and look to the sky and shout, will there ever be an end? Recursion. Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast <laughs> where we talk about Keyforge, its community, and hello and welcome to Call of Discovery. Stop. Okay. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's 10.30 p.m. here. I can't take it. <laughs> Going to drive him mad. There's a man washing the Thames. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't end well for people normally. <laughs> no, I don't think that would end well for anybody. <laughs> it's not the cleanest of rivers. Recursion, of course, is retrieving a card from an out of play. 
area. Uh, Team Covenant's context for this is really talking about how it creates. Uh, it can create an undesirable play experience. Recurring something uh, means you can get some card, some effect over and over again in a way in a way that just creates a feels bad, a feels bad moment. And the person they had on with them was Lucas Litzinger of Android Netrunner of uh, the Star Wars card game Destiny, now of Marvel Spell, Sing- uh, Spell Slingers. And what they talked about was in Destiny, uh, Lucas had worked on, well, first Lucas had worked on Android Net for one or for a while and dealt with some recursion issues, some feels bad issues uh, in Android Netrunner, recurring things from the discard pile and it became very uh, oppressive. And then Destiny launched and there was a Millennium Falcon and uh, Hyperspace combination that with recursion and free just started to to loop things. So, and I think the this is, uh, I love that this is just so on the nose for the biggest errata issue in Keyforge's early days, which uh, was a recursion issue combined with uh, free <laughs> baked in because it was uh, the library access Nepenthe seed combination. Uh, for those who have come in maybe after called the Archons, library access, of course, being the action card that originally read uh, play for the remainder of the turn after you play a card, draw a card. It originally did not purge itself. It was later eroded to purge itself. So what you do is you would play library access. You would pop the Omni ability on Nepenthe Seed that says sacrifice Nepenthe Seed, return a card from your discard pile to your hand. You would play library access again, and now you're drawing two cards for every one. And you would just play so many cards. You'd play a card, draw two, play a card, draw two. Uh, and that was such a bad play experience that uh, that was such a bad play experience that they had to errata library access to purge itself. And so the solution that both Team Covenant spoke about on this podcast and the solution that was worked into the errata for library access and then many cards inspired by it in later sets is removing the recurrable card from play if it's super powerful to recur that card uh have it remove itself from play in keyforge's case of course that's purge library access was eroded to say purge library access at the very end and we got the amazing nod uh to library access in library card in dark tidings uh the rare artifact that put this all on an action ability. So it was slower. You had to play it, wait for it to ready till your next turn, and then use the action ability. And it purged itself, and it's rare. So you're going to see it less. So, uh, and we see that, of course, on things like uh, Honors, Kesis, and Library Card, and just uh, one or two other cards that purge themselves after use so that recursion doesn't make them crazy dangerous. Uh, that's also what uh, Think Twice does. The Dark Tidings Logos action card that says play an action card from your discard pile, purge it. So yeah, you get to play it twice uh, if you played it normally the first time, but after that, it's gone. Yeah, and one thing that was mentioned on the Covenant episode of this, which I thought was really intriguing, was the one of the, the big sins of game design in this space where that um, exile... Um, from the game becomes part of the game. So if, for instance, there was a card that allowed us to pull back 
cards from exile and then play them again, um, it would essentially nullify the uh, restrictions on library access and many other cards um, and, and could, could break the game, really. And uh, I think we've seen examples of this type of thing where an out-of-play area becomes an in-play area and, um, and really messes with everything. And so far in Keyforge, I think they've kept recursion outside of library access, of course, otherwise relatively safe just in the design space they've put it in. We've seen a lot of recursion targeting creatures like regrowth and ritual of life, uh, which usually, given uh, the other mechanical requirements around creatures, uh, isn't isn't uh, too oppressive, isn't too oppressive, alpha and omega Uh, help that as well, restricting at what point you can play the card. Uh, And then mostly the recursion is just an untamed. There's, of course, a handful of exceptions, especially with um, logos and action cards, but a lot of the recursion is uh, out of untamed. So it's it's stayed mostly in some pretty safe boxes, uh, some pretty safe boxes, but uh, definitely keep your eye on the recursive uh, space, right? for both uh, powerful decks and then maybe something that will uh, break again. Ho- hopefully not. I th- they uh, hopefully have learned their lesson going forward as ghost galaxy designs, future sets. Um, but uh, yeah, very, very powerful mechanic, uh, but certainly can, can be cause some negative, some negative play experiences. Indeed. And next we're going to be talking about house dis. Uh, sorry. I mean, house unfathomable. I- I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, denial. <laughs> Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and d- denial in the card game is where you say nope, you can't do that. Uh, that that's that's not happening today. Um, it is cards that negate an action that would otherwise occur, um, or even weaponize it to your own advantage. Um, so this could be discarding cards. It could be reducing the resources that your opponent has to hand to play. Um, and I think it's fair to say there's a very fine line where this becomes a really healthy, fun part of a game where you're going and that and that and take that and take that. And, uh, you know, it can quite quickly and easily turn into a bad feel bad experience. Um, and a bad play experience, which particularly in a in a competitive game where you've got deck building, if you've got cards that deny things and are really powerful, you can find them almost everywhere. They they talked about it being it being that sort of that can be that feels bad experience when denial is is in your game. Um, but I think in Keyforge, it's been handled it's been handled pretty well so far. Um, it's, you know, primarily in those houses you mentioned with a few exceptions. I love Skippy Time Hog, that Logos Mutant uh, play. Your opponent can't use cards next turn. That's just so fun. Um, but most of the denial only lasts a turn, like card pinging or creature exhausting. Um, the, the stuff that actually sticks to the board, uh, on maybe a creature or an artifact is the really powerful stuff that you have to be aware of if you see it on a, especially on an Archon list across from you, like Restring Guntus uh, or passive artifacts like Eaton's Jar, something like that. And, and Restring Guntus behind a couple of big sanctums and the opponent not having board wipe can stray into that feel bad experience. I think it's fair, particularly 
without any limitations or or erratas. That's right. And they had to solve, they actually had to solve that uh, a denial experience early in the game, one that Richard Garfield intended to be there with Restoring Guntus, which of course says, uh, play, choose a house on your opponent's Archon card. Your opponent cannot call that house as their active house until Restoring Guntus leaves play. And then control the weak, which is play, choose a house on your opponent's Archon card. They must choose that house uh, as their active house the next turn. And the original interaction of those two cards play effects happening and you picking the same house with both ones saying, okay, you can't call this house with Restoring Guntus, but then you must call this house with Control the Weak. The original call on how those interacted was your opponent had to pass the turn with no active house. So they could use an Omni ability, but they were not able to call a house. Uh, I have a deck that started out as a combo deck. It's got th- uh, Restoring Guntus and three Control the Weak and a Master Plan. And I would, uh, the old magic term is time walk. I would uh, just time walk people and be able to basically take four, like three to four full turns in a row with them doing nothing once I dropped to Guntus and, and Control the Weak. Uh, but of course, they uh, just looked at the rules interactions, looked at the interaction of must and cannot and the golden rule and said, Actually, uh, the situation isn't no house. It's it's uh, you get to you actually get to pick any house, which honestly made sense from reading of the rules. And with the number of rage quits I had on uh, the Crucible online when I practiced that deck, I uh, I think that was the right move. Even looking back at the Restoring Guntis issue, which I mean, believe me when I say I loved that got me in love with playing Denial in Keyforge. Uh, I famously seek out the only other way to achieve the same effect that exists in the carpool, which is uh, I call affectionately rocket Tezzy, which is two Tezmals and a rocket boots. Tezmal has reap pick a pick a house on your opponent's Archon card. They cannot call that house as their active house on their next turn, but their algorithm limited to only two in a deck. And then you get rocket boots, which says this creature gains fight reap. If this was the first time this turn, this creature was used ready it. And so you just stick a rocket boots on one of your two Tesmals and you get to reap three times saying your opponent cannot choose these houses. And because of the way it's worded with cannot, you're actually locking them out. Uh, however, that's um, extremely difficult to pull off, which I think is indicative of my it's a good example of my overall point in that denial uh, as resource reducing as card discarding denial, I think is very well designed in Keyforge. It's a good archetype. It's a high level, uh, a high level play thing in a player to be able to recognize when your denial is substituting well for maybe amber control uh, or creature control because you're literally just messing with what your opponent can or can't do so much that they're not going to get their creatures on the board. They're not going to gain that amber. So uh, the power seven, this this part of the power seven, I think, is alive and well in the Crucible, uh, and I can't wait to see the continued iterations uh on denial as we as we go forward in the game nor can i it's really exciting and i think what they've done with house unfathomable is show that denial can be really multifaceted and multi-dimensional within the game it doesn't have to look like this it can look a little bit different and i think keys in particular mm-hmm. um allow you to play a different game with denial than than you can in 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 in, in different games because keyforge essentially a racing game that's right Um, that's right but if we move on now to i think probably it's fair to say the one of the seven where uh keyforge does have some challenges 
uh, we're going to talk about memory. So, Zach, do you want to mm, take us back a little sure. bit and talk about sure. what is memory? How does it work in, in, in different card games? Yeah. So the concept of memory, which really I have first heard this distilled through Team Covenant. So I think the biggest credit as far as uh, a development of these ideas, this is really the the biggest place I heard it from them, even if it started elsewhere. The concept of memory is when you're looking at a game and how many decisions are going on in the game, how much you have to track, you ask yourself how much is going on in the game all at once and how hard is it to track? How much of that should be a part of your game and how much of that becomes unnecessary kind of chaff that is not contributing to your game being uh, fun and interesting to play. And where a few people, especially Zach Bunn, and I I have a bit of a rebuttal to this, not a a big one, but especially Zach Bunn dings the game on uh, the large runaway board states. There was uh, in the old days of the Sanctimonious Discord, people liked to talk about RABS, runaway board state syndrome, where you have a whole ton of creatures out on the board, your opponent can't do anything, and that opponent just kind of reaps out and wins. And so... When you're managing a huge battle line of creatures, that memory can be difficult to keep up with. What creatures have what abilities uh, and the sequencing become can become difficult to execute, difficult to execute well. Uh, they had Justin Gary of Soulforge Fusion on to talk about this one, his game Soulforge Fusion. If you haven't played it, uh, you play uh, you get to play uh, two cards per round, one after the other alternating with your opponent and uh the cards are also free like keyforge it's uh, all opportunity cost of course so no card every card in soulforge fusion is free and no cards in soulforge fusion are free and he's got a game where you just play to one of five lanes and then combat happens automatically so he talked about trying to solve memory issues and getting all of that minutia all of that kind of memory load of holding all these things in your head out of the way so you can just play strategically. And I do think Soulforge Fusion accomplishes that in a few ways in that you're making a small handful of choices, but they have big strategic long-term impact. So you have quite the decision tree there. Um, I do have, <laughs> I do think they actually uh, pinged, ping the brain pretty hard on memory and non in, in other ways, but I'll, I'll save that for later. This is not a, a review of Soulforge Fusion. So, <laughs> but that, that's the summary of memory and, and how kind of Keyforge gets dinged for it in some people's, in some people's estimations. Yeah. And what I really like about Zach and Steven's Team Covenant's view here is they refer to it as, as RAM. So random yes. access memory. And, and I do think here, yeah, that is good because it, it, it kind of suggests okay, so there's only a certain amount of data that you can hold at any one time before it starts being problematic from a computing standpoint. But I think that works with our brains as well. If we think about the number of permanent effects, plus the game's rules themselves, plus the general effects that are going on by the actions that you're, ta- uh, you're, 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 you're undergoing every, every turn of the game, I think you, you get a limit there. There's a limit where you start being bogged down, where if you're playing something at 9 p.m. in the evening and you just want a bit of fun, you know it's too much. If you're five rounds into a tournament, you're going to start forgetting some of those permanent effects. If you're playing with new players, you're not going to want to play things that have that complexity because the the it's going to be overwhelming to take all that on the the ram that you have 
grows as you play a game um, for that game because you you've got some kind of axioms to draw upon. You've got some some things that you don't have to hold in 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 in, in that RAM. You you've you've got it. You've got it already covered. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'd I'd have to say. Oh, hold on. There's somebody at my door. Let me. Sure. Oh, no. I said go away. No. Ah, 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 ah. Sweaty Zack here, coming to defend the memory of Keyforge. <laughs> because you see, Keyforge has a mostly unintended, very quality, competitive end. Archon Solo, Archon Triad, even sealed. Very quality, competitive experiences. And here's the thing, dweebs. The more creatures... The more creatures on the board, the more Hadrioth's walls I play, the more banners of battle, the more passive things I throw out there that you have to remember, the more you might mess up when I face you in the Crucible. And guess what? That's competition, baby. If you mess up, that's competition. No takes backs, no mulligans when you're playing Sweaty Zack. If you want to compete, if you want to have the thrill of getting everything right and taking advantage of your opponent's mistakes, I want the biggest board possible to give you as much to forget as possible. Okay, you can have this dweeb back. Uh, uh, oh, wow. I lost consciousness there for a second. Oh my gosh, there's somebody running away from my house? He's very wet. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I, I think Sweaty Zach is going to have a Keyforge set with about uh, a kind of a potential player base of 10 at this point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, well, to def- to defend Sweaty Zach's point, there is there is I think a gray area you have to consider uh, at least on like the high end competitive end. So I, I I I completely agree. We need to save people from that from running out of RAM yeah. in all the situations you mentioned, and that needs to be a major consideration in KeyForge, or it won't grow. Uh, I think the other side of the coin is that a certain there is a certain amount of that that still stays. Uh, that still says this is the game and it's like any competition. It's like basketball, like tennis, uh, right? That if your opponent messes up, that's uh, a part of the game. Now, of course, with Soulforge Fusion, they said, let's remove as much of that as possible from that play uh, to have that be a cleaner experience. Um, I just think there, I think there's room for a bit of complexity that, that satisfies and on that competitive end. Um, But again, if we just let that run free, we're not going to have a whole lot of new people. Yeah, and I think to, to bring the casual view on here, because if you're new to, to to Call of Discovery listeners, Zach's the more competitive one of the two of us. <laughs> I am aggressively casual. It's um, the worst. Ca- yeah, my competitiveness <laughs> is at this point the worst kept secret in Keyforge. <laughs> um, but we still have the same success at Vault Tour. So. Um, <laughs> you're you're not wrong. You're not wrong. So uh yeah, I mean I'll throw that shade. Um but no, no, I, I, I have an issue when it comes to, to Keyforge and memory, and that issue is with new players. And uh you know, certainly it begun sneaking in, I think, a bit with mass mutations. Before that, it was absolutely fine. But with Dark Tidings in particular, there oh, is so bad. much yeah. to remember that yeah. actually <laughs> it, it puts me off playing Dark Tidings because it's just it's stressful and i play keyforge to relax and most of the people i play keyforge with are even more casual than me and Mm, so for them dark tidings is really difficult if you want to catch up with a friend over dinner and play a couple of games of keyforge 
Dark Tidings becomes a really difficult set to play because yes. of this RAM issue where you, you just you just need to constantly be going, oh, have we thought about this and have we thought about that? And yeah, it's very difficult to have a free flowing conversation when you're when you're when you're when you're having to think about all that stuff. I mean, I, I even with, with that in mind, I did wonder whether Winds of Exchange, um, the next set forthcoming, was was going straight game game fan because it was maybe more of a um, a set that you, you you maybe needed to have some KeyForge knowledge for before playing, um, unlike a. Uh, Call of the Archons and Age of Ascension, and yeah, you know, I think the real threat here is if someone walks into a game store, buys a, a deck off a shelf, and sits down to play it, and they're overwhelmed from scratch. You know, that's not a very good play experience. So I think sure. that yes. there should always be a set of KeyForge or an option for people to come in and start playing something. They should be able to open a deck and join in with a, a Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night KeyForge session. And, you know, they should feel right at home and, and, and they should feel like they're able to pilot their own deck, even if they've got no knowledge coming into it. I don't think that's the case with Dark Tidings. Um, and I think there's a risk that, that artificially lowers the, the player base. But... It's fine to have multiple different products, some aimed at people that already know Keyforge and, and want to try lots of crazy stuff. Um, but I mean, yeah, the design space is so wide. You you could do you could do loads uh, without sort of adding to the complexity and persistent effects. Uh, I will say that with um, a number of new or just kind of relatively amateur players, uh, we relatively quickly stopped playing Dark Tidings Sealed at uh, the previous store my local night was held at and it's for that reason it was just too it was too much sequencing too much ram for not enough payoff with new players now that being said uh one of my buddies who was one of the first people i got into keyforge in this area he's very good he's very good uh he and i love playing dark tiding seal together <laughs> because we're both uh more intense players who like to figure out all that sequencing and we also know the person we're across from is not just going to have a terrible experience so i fully agree there and i do know that uh they are working on revised starter sets that are not even going to have the the training decks won't even be full decks at all there'll be sets of cards um sets of cards that are smaller easier to manage easier to guide a player through an experience uh, i anticipate they'll be sorted in a particular order like the magic the gathering training decks if any listeners have experience with those so that you can actually walk people through a number of turns with these partial partial training decks um and really help them through that process but even then going there to let's say winds of exchange uh let's say that it's normal to have, and I, we have no idea what the variance or standard deviation will be in this sort of metric, but let's say most Winds of Exchange decks, uh, by mid-game, everybody has four to eight tokens out on the board all at one time. And it's going to be so easy to forget that your key card you were digging for got tokenized earlier uh or not realize what you can do what you can really get done with these cards that have been turned into tokens um so i think winds of exchange depending on how uh how much tokenization there is could cross that line i'm certainly looking forward to it as a competitive player but i think winds of exchange is 
uh, is get, may toe that line as far as uh, complexity goes. We'll see. However, I do have trust that Ghost Galaxy is uh, keeping that player in mind, that exact play experience you described. And I have tr- I have the utmost faith that um, that Ghost Galaxy is keeping that player in mind as they move forward. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I really do too. And I'm confident around that. I also think if we can assume that Winds of Exchange is going to be a more complex set, uh, like Dark Tidings, well, a game-found Kickstarter-type thing is going to be perfect for it because you don't get that challenge of it being the only thing on the shelf at retailers. You know, you are essentially selling it to people that have probably already played Keyforge or have enough interest in the idea of Keyforge to to kind of to to go for it to 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 invest directly in in the product and um yeah i, I think so it, it allows uh, the designers to have a more complex set and and to put it out there yeah yeah lots lots to play with there lots to consider um so far uh i've got a lot of hope in ghost galaxy as they make these decisions um, cause it's, it's things they really need to be aware of to be able to steward the game, to, to steward the game well and get more, more players into it for sure. Indeed. Indeed. So that's our, our power of seven. Um, and just as a reminder, <laughs> listeners, we have said resource cards, free silver bullets. Well, they don't really work in the same way of Keyforge, which shows how much Keyforge has really innovated on things. Resource cards and free. Keyforge is all about the cards, and it, the cards are, are resourced through scarcity. Um, when it comes to silver bullets, we've seen a lot of silver bullets that don't really feel like silver bullets because they've been quite well done. Things like um, anti-steel mechanics being introduced after steel was quite strong um, early on. And the last four, of course, were limit one, limiting cards to one of in a deck, which can happen uh, by choice of designer or in Keyforge by choice of algorithm, Uh, just increasing, uh, pulling down on the power of a card by decreasing or by increasing variance. Uh, Then recursion, retrieving cards from out of play areas, denial, of course. And then lastly, as we just dove into memory. So those are the power seven. A huge thanks to Team Covenant for doing the series. It was a great insight into many, uh, their minds and the minds of many designers really into looking into what makes a card game tick. And it was a really great showcase of a lot of the different mechanics of card games that uh, are evolving, like resources on cards like Flesh and Blood and Marvel Champions, and then everything that Keyforge is doing, kind of looking for what's uh, okay what what could be even more fun what could what could balance all these things out in just the right way to make a really fun card game so really appreciative for all of this sort of really high level thinky stuff indeed indeed i love these types of conversations as well zach they are incredibly crunchy um and we should probably do one of these for the how to ruin a game uh segment that they did uh, a few a few years ago as well and see how how keyforge fares there but um none, nonetheless i too share the same optimism around keyforge's new owners everything we've seen so far suggests that they are going to be fantastic stewards for this game that we love and um, I'm excited to see that where that takes us. Um, yeah. 
So that is it for today. Uh, a nice, nice chat with Ed and I about the Power 7. So, of course, shout out to Team Covenant. And if you haven't listened to their Power 7 episodes, uh, go check that out now. They've also been talking quite a bit about Keyforge on and off for the last few weeks, the last few months, especially with the news. So go give them a listen if you haven't, if you're as voracious a Keyforge content consumer like me. And uh, Sweaty Zach, who's still running around, he has not stopped running since earlier. He's doing laps around the neighborhood. And you can tell how many laps he's done by um, how much sweat uh, is in his sweat trail on the road as he goes around. And if you're enjoying Call of Discovery, you can subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you're on your phone, just pop it open, hit follow or subscribe there if you haven't already. And if you do, if you have, my goodness, thank you so much. That's uh, honestly flattering. And if you're new to Keyforge, please visit the new player guide on Archon Arcana. It's the Keyforge wiki. We've got that linked below. So uh, it has everything you need to really get started into your own journey into this wonderful game. And if you're looking to help people get into the game, grab that link, have that ready to send to anybody uh, who really starts to show an interest, an interest in the game. If you're looking to support Call of Discovery monetarily, our Patreon is linked below where you can sign up to support us monthly and uh, join our exclusive Discord and get the inside scoop on future episodes. Let us know what you'd like to see more or less of in the show by interacting with us across social media on Twitter. Well, really just Twitter right now. Um, I will eventually see it on Facebook. Really just stick to Twitter or email or email us at podcast at callofdiscovery.com. But most importantly, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please help them to discover it. Have you answered the call of discovery? 